Okay, so Luke 10, this is what we're reading. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Luke 10, verse 25 through 37. And if not, it's on the blue card right here. So we've been going through this missional culture lately, and here's the scripture. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers. He stripped him, and he beat him, and he departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to the inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them denarii? Denarii. It's tough stuff. And gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will pay you when, you, when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to, be the, proved to be a neighbor to the man and who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. So if you'd bow your heads, we'll pray. Uh, uh, Lord, I thank you so much for this day. I thank you for a beautiful day to get to know you more and for this place, the gathering, that we get to come and worship you and know you. And, I pray that uh, you would speak boldly through Brian today, and for the people here who are still searching, who are uh, dry or whatever it may be, Lord, would would leave here and pass on this great message to others, God, and that we would love each other um, as you love us, Jesus. So let us celebrate you today and um, make missions a, a way of life. In your son's name we pray, amen. People, um, people in my position that get up here pretty regularly and, and talk and try to share from the Bible, it is a temptation just to go through the motions and, just, and just, just cruise and try to prepare talks that are scriptural and relevant and, and all that kind of stuff. I'm telling you right now, it is a huge temptation for all pastors. And, and I, I recognize that. And so it is, my, it is my deliberate attention that I honestly want to live out what I'm talking about. And that I do want to be relentless in my prayer life and to be pursuing Christ. And it's just not just something that I'm just saying, oh, this sounds like a fun thing to talk about for a while. Let's talk about this, and then we'll go on to something else. It's something that I want deep into my life. And when I say that, I mean that I want that deep into you know, my marriage, my children, and in extending into our church family. So um, while it is a temptation, it's something that I recognize, and um, I want to, to you know, fight through that. This morning, if there's one word that we can think through as far as what it's about, the word is compassion. The story of the Good Samaritan is a a common, popular story, and we know it. But this morning, um, my hope is that we will deepen our understanding of it and that we will not just because it's something familiar, just kind of cruise along with it and and go along with it. I listened to a few sermons this week on the story of the Good Samaritan, and this guy, one sermon I heard, told a story about someone in New York City where this woman had lots of money and she didn't have any family members to to pass it on to. And she had this one uh, gentleman friend that she thought about giving it to, but she wasn't sure. 
And so she dressed up like a homeless person and kind of camped out near his house to see how he would honestly treat her. And he treated her like garbage. And so she crossed him off the list. And so this morning, you know, I was just thinking about that this week. And, and no joke, as I'm, I'm driving to church this morning, I'm pulling out of my driveway just right here on Point Doom. And a young girl that was, <laughs> I thought it was a joke, but I'm just hoping, I don't know what to make of this. No joke, this 20-something-year-old girl dressed up like super homeless looking, like hunched over, and I think she was. I don't know, though. And just like, like her shoes were blankets wrapped around her feet and tied with ropes. Over. Like, okay, this just doesn't fit, like, on Point Doom right outside my house. And honestly, in my mind, I'm going to church. I got this to do. I got, I got all the things I have to take care of. It fits perfectly, the passage. Am I going to get out of my car and ask this person if they need any help or not? Or am I going to say, forget that. i got to go take down the tent walls. Really important things. And so, okay, I started to go. I'm like, okay, I can't do that. So I, I put it in a park and get out, and I go ask the person. And she, like, flashed me, like, this amazingly nice, sweet smile, super nice white teeth. That's why it confused me. And she's like, no, I'm great. And I'm like, oh, man, I just don't know what to do with this. But I did get out of the car. The good news is, at least I did get out of the car. And if, if you are like a Pepperdine girl playing a joke on me to see if I'm like actually nice sometimes, well, sometimes I am. I just wasn't sure. So it was a very good joke. If it was, and if it was sincere, then I tried to help her, but she didn't want any help. So I did my, no, no. All right. Let's try to make some sense of the story of the Good Samaritan. We're going to, we will go through it a little bit more verse by verse to help us understand this. So here's what we'll do. Um, I'm going to put this right here. I'm going to give you what I think is, uh, is the passage in one sentence, and then we'll explain it. So the big idea of the passage, a theological understanding of that, and then how it applies. So... Here we go. My best shot after studying the passage is this, that Jesus attacks the complacency of religious people who isolate themselves from meeting the needs of others and instead illustrates that the essence of following him includes the compassionate care of others. I know it's a long sentence, but it's the best I could do. My wife, the English teacher, helped me Shorten it up. So Jesus attacks the complacency of religious people who isolate themselves, who separate themselves, who protect themselves from meeting the needs of others, and instead illustrates that the essence of following Jesus includes the compassionate care of others. We've probably all had times in our lives where we've experienced someone that doesn't have the same personal body hygiene as we do, and we're a little bit on the, like the ooh side, and um, I can remember being uh, in Kenya, and um, we went on safari, Karen and I and her family, and did all that kind of stuff, but one day, we went out to this other place, and if I remember right, Karen stayed home back at the main lodge, she was pregnant, and, and so we went to this one remote Maasai tribe, and the lady just sweet as pie, Maasai lady out in the middle of nowhere, you know, invites us into her house. And it was, I don't know how hot, it was just super hot, all right? 
And you know, no windows. It's a mud house made out of mud and straw and cow dung kind of stuff. And inside the house, it was just blazing hot. So, you know, I don't know, 10 by 10 kind of thing that smelled like smoke and urine because they wouldn't let the children out. If a little child had to go to the bathroom late at night, it's just not safe. So they used, you know, the corner, I guess, and a little bit of urine and smoke smell. And the most sweet person, though, hospitable, offered me tea and all this stuff. And, and honestly, I was kind of like really not sure if I want to drink your tea, right? thinking to myself, and how do I be polite? I don't want to be like the ugly American of just like it's all about me being clean and getting my Purell out and cleaning my hands and all that kind of stuff. But we are, and everyone's a little bit different. You know, every year I take my eighth graders to, to D.C., New York, and a lot of the girls, New York subway, they hold on. Subway starts going. As soon as it's going, they put out the Purell and clean their hands grab the pole again. It's like they're like germ freaks. And so our own little hygiene thing is, listen, it's going to be challenged this morning. Okay? And I guarantee you, every time I, I study and then look at the words of Jesus, it is not easy. And if we want to, we can make the parable say kind of whatever we want. If we want to tone it down and make it Malibu comfortable and just chill and, and, and make it be a nice little story of being nice to people, then we miss the point. It is, it is much more challenging than that. All right? So to begin with, though, we will look at the theological question that provides context. So here is the wrong approach to this kind of stuff, to a parable of Jesus. We read the story and say, that's a nice little story, just like three little pigs. One, two, three. The good guy is the good at the end, and, and there we go, and now we can go home. Here's what we don't do. The story of the Good Samaritan is not a story of moralism. It is not a story that says, go out and do nice things to poor people. It is that, but it is much more than that. Okay, I'll say that one more time. It's not just a story of helping poor people. It is that, but it is much more than that. And if you take it just at that, you turn Christianity into moralism which means I just want to be doing good things. All right, so here's an example. And I'll use SOS as an example. If we turn the parable of the Good Samaritan into a story of moralism, what that means is, um, let's see, we do SOS every other month. So all those times in between, we can live as complacent, comfortable religious people. And then once, once every 60 days, put on our nice, happy faces, and go serve poor people and feel good about ourselves. All right? So that is a total misunderstanding of the parable of the Good Samaritan. So let's try to understand it. So you've got to understand the context, the theological context first, before we can apply it. And so the question we will ask is, what is the relationship between eternal life, who you love, and how you justify yourself? What is the relationship between eternal life, who you love, and how you justify yourself? So those are all big questions, but it's essential. All right, so here's how this works. There are two rounds. If you ever want to have a round with Jesus, he has two rounds, two heavyweight fighters. Go for it, two rounds. Now, round number one, round number two are very similar. It starts with a question. Jesus follows up with a clarifying question. Then the man answers. He'll do that two times, okay? So, it starts out, chapter 10, 
Verse 25 says this, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. All right, we got to stop there just for a second. All right, so here's what's happening. Jewish culture, everyone's sitting down. Jesus is probably sitting down and, and teaching, instructing. And this man stands up as a sign of respect um, to ask a question. But here's what we know. He stands up trying to show honor and dignity to Jesus. But then the next clause says, but to put him to the test. Putting him to the test. So he's duplicitous. He's, he's being hypocritical. He's being, he's being deceiving to Jesus. His motives are not sincere. They're not pure. He's trying to trick, trick them. All right, I've, you know, I've, as a teacher for 10 or 12 years, occasionally you'll have a student that wants to ask some random historical fact to try to like, trick you up. And so here's what Jesus does. If, um, if someone asks you a question that you're unsure about the answer and you know they're trying to embarrass you, all you do is you do what Jesus does. You follow up with another question that clarifies and it's a great technique to learn and actually get people to better understand. All right? So here, for example, if you're talking with someone about, um, and this has been relevant in the last year in Christianity, that, that hell really doesn't exist or, the, you know, who, the hell question. God really can't send people to hell who don't know Jesus. Or the other way to ask it, are you really sure you believe that Jesus sends everyone to hell who doesn't believe in Jesus? That's a fair question. All right, so that's a big, broad question. So a clarifying question would be, is anyone worthy of hell? Is Hitler worthy of hell? Is, it, is there anything that's so bad in this world that that person's worthy of hell, of eternal separation from God? Now you've got a discussion. Now you can at least have a discussion on the criteria for eternal destiny of people. So Jesus says, this false person says, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And this is just a key thing here. What must I do? Normally, eternal life is, excuse me, um, eternal life is not inherited. right? We don't normally inherit, an inheritance is something that's given to you. It's not something you do. But he asked this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, what is written in the law? Have you read it? There's Jesus' follow-up question. Remember, he's talking to a lawyer, but this is actually a theologian. He is a, a scholar of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, of the Torah. He knows it well. The man answers in verse 27 and says, And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. All right, if the man would just stop right there, he'd be fine. All right, 28 says, And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Round two, here's where it changes now. Here's, here's just a hint, too. Discussion with someone, especially with Jesus. Just, you got to learn when to stop. Because the story, if the guy, you know, he's a little bit arrogant, a little bit full of himself. And if he would have just stopped there, it would have been okay. In fact, let me show you just really quick someone who's very different than this man. If you turn to Mark, just really quick. Mark chapter 12, and I'll show you the difference between a sincere person and someone who's being deceitful, 
who has false motives. Mark chapter 12, verse 28. This is where you can contrast. This is how Jesus treats people differently. Mark 12, 28 says, And one of the scribes, same type of guy, came up and heard him disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, What commandment is most important of all? And Jesus answered the exact same thing. The most important thing is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Skipping down to verse 34. And when Jesus saw, he answered wisely. He said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. The man is sincerely seeking after the Lord. And Jesus sincerely, with gentleness, with love, speaks back to him and says, you know what, friend? You're on the right path. You're getting it. You're you're understanding. In stark contrast to the lawyer who's trying to test Jesus, who's trying to make a fool of Jesus. Verse 29 says, But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? With a smart aleck little eighth grade tone that I get every once in a while, I can just see this here, trying to justify himself. And in a sense, there's a, a, a double meaning in the sense that he's doing this publicly. So he's going to try to save face, but also trying to justify himself before God. Here's the sense. We don't even use this word that much anymore. But the idea to justify means to make right. To make right. And here's, here's what I mean. Um, and I'll tell you a very short story. When I was, I don't know how old I was, 13 or 14, something like that, we had one neighbor in our neighborhood of boys. It was, you know, small town, rural America, small town group of boys that got into trouble sometimes. And there was one neighbor, this guy was just really mean to us. And so, I don't know, it was probably, you know, midnight or something that I snuck out. And, you know, 13, 14-year-old boys have these brilliant ideas. They're really stupid. <laughs> and so we thought we'd get back at this guy. And we had, you know, this is Washington. We live near Indian Reservation. So we could get really cool, loud fireworks. Me and my buddies standing outside of his house, lighting firecrackers and throwing them at his house. And, like, as a teacher now, we, we know that frontal lobe development doesn't happen until you're like 21. And so loud bangs at you know, midnight doesn't take too long before this man wakes up. And so here I am. I'm about ready to throw my firecracker. And I look behind. And I see all my friends running and, and scattering. I thought they were playing a joke on me, like we're going to hide from Brian and, and whatever. So I'm like, I'm not playing that game. Threw the firecracker. And then all of a sudden I felt this like, man-sized hand on my back. And the guy like grabs me and throws me to the ground and what, calls the police and all this stuff. And so the police come. And it's always really fun to have you know, the parents get a phone call from the police to say, we have your son. So I get brought home. And my mom said, you are going back to that man's house tomorrow. And you are going to apologize. And you are going to make things right. You are going to make things right. There was a barrier between me and this guy. Okay, number one, I didn't like him because I thought he was mean. Now, now he doesn't like me because I'm throwing firecrackers at his house. All right, so there is a barrier there. And so to make things right, I actually had to apologize. And it turned out the guy was actually very cool, like almost all situations. The guy was 
super nice and cool and ended up having a good friendship with the, the man as I got to know him. But here's what's happening. Desiring to justify himself. He says to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? <clears throat> who is my neighbor? He wanted to make himself look good. All right? And so in Jewish culture at this time, who is my neighbor? That, that is the idea that my family, my friends, my own tribe of people, that's my neighbor. Those are the people who I will do good to. But the key is, <clears throat> going back to verse 27, where it says, talking about loving God <clears throat> with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all your strength, all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Here's what Jesus is pushing to. He's pushing the man, pushing us this morning, to see, to show us that none of us do that. None of us do that. Not me, never even close. And this is taken from Deuteronomy chapter 6, and I think it's Leviticus 19. Where Jesus is getting him, pushing him to see that you're not quite as good as you think you are. And that's why the question, who is your neighbor, is going to push him to show that it's not what you think. Here's what religion does. Religion, religion is about creating your code of conduct, your morality, your things you do. And you justify yourself based on those things. And it turns to letter of the law religion. It takes away the freedom we have in Christ. Whether you realize it or not, we are all, we have something within all of us that wants to justify ourselves before God, that we want to do things that make ourselves look good before God. And Jesus, knowing this man's heart, is going to answer him with telling, by telling a story. But before we do that, just to clarify, the relationship between eternal life, what you love, and how you justify yourself is what you love. What you love will determine everything else in your life. So for example... When the Bible says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, your strength. When you're jealous of other people, or envious, or dishonest with your money, or dishonest with your, your spouse, or your family, you are no longer loving God with all of your heart. When we have thoughts of greed, of, of self-centeredness. All of these things um, point us to show that you're not doing exactly what the greatest command is. And specifically, then, in this story, it's about the question of who is your neighbor. So what you love, what you love the most, will determine eternal life. And it's as easy as this, and we, we've talked about this before, but if relationships are the ultimate in your life, that's the thing you'll be in bondage to. If money, power, attention, friendships, if those are the things you love the most, if you want more than anything else, more money, if you want more than anything else, a girlfriend, a boyfriend, marriage, kids, whatever it is, 
Anything that takes the place of God, that you love more than God, you fall short. So now to, to bring it specifically to the story of this man, who in his mind has done these things. And Jesus, knowing his heart, is going to go straight to the issue that will, that will create, hopefully, this man's eyes to open up. And that is the question, who is your neighbor? And so Jesus then tells the story. Again, I'll just read it quickly. Verse 30 says, <clears throat> Jesus will tell the story and then ask the question. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. So, many miles downhill, a known dangerous road. Um, the place you would not want to be at um, tonight at 3 in the morning, somewhere in south central L.A., driving down an alleyway, that's the place you don't want to be. A dangerous place, a known place of violence. And so this man, who is assumed to be a Jewish man, fell among robbers, stripped and beat him, departed, leaving him half dead, unconscious, unconscious there. And then the story of the one, two, three of, of what we know. Here's the thing. The, the problem of knowing the story already is it loses the impact. But if we can maybe try to change it a little bit to help us understand it, it might be something like this. Um, a pastor of a large, established, successful church walks down the road, doesn't want to get too close, his schedule's too busy, doesn't want to, doesn't want to be bothered. Second guy comes, maybe he's an associate pastor or a past, young pastor of a small new church, and he kind of copies the pattern, the model of, of the older guy, the established pastor. And then you've got the atheist professor at UCLA who walks down the road and shows mercy and shows compassion. See, Jesus tells the story in a way that totally upsets the normal paradigm. The normal paradigm, the normal way of telling a story is that a Jewish person would be the hero. That a, maybe a Jewish farmer, maybe it's a, an indictment against the religious upper class of Judaism, and that a, a, a Jewish carpenter or someone will be the hero. But he doesn't. He uses the Samaritan, the, out, the despised one, the half-breed, the ones that, where there's massive cultural tension between the two. And that's why you can't, if you're willing to look honestly at, at the story, Jesus never is never just normal. He's just never comfortable. He's never easy. He makes everyone to think. And so we'll look at it for just a minute. He tells the story about the Samaritan who is compassionate. So first, though, we've got the priest. All right. So just the just a little bit of background on the priest. The priest most likely. Um, He's coming out of Jerusalem after doing his religious duties and responsibilities, possibly going home to Jericho. Most definitely, he's riding on a donkey or some form of animal. Only the poorest of the poor would walk. And here's the thing. A priest, above all else, or at least one of the essential things, would view his purity as essential. In fact, here's a... <clears throat> Really cool book. I, you know, I'm a book nut, book nut a little bit, but this is a, an American uh, seminary professor who spent 25 years living in Israel in the Middle East. And um, 
talked about his experiences there in this passage. But here's one thing that's really interesting. I won't, I won't read it, but um, a, a priest would maintain, would hold highly his, his ritual purity. And if there was a dead body, he would have to stay between 20 to 25 feet away to stay ritually clean. So here comes the priest cruising down, and he sees this dead guy, or at least what looks to be a dead guy, and he's thinking about his rules, his religious rules. My job, my reputation is to be clean. He's caring more about his reputation, about his religious checklist of do's and don'ts, and barely even really gives the guy a glance. All right, so here's the thing. Some of us, by personality, love checklists of do's and don'ts. Christians don't do this. Christians do this. And we just live our lives this way. Very simple. It's easy. It's black and white. According to this time, I'm not, I don't care. I don't associate. There's some really f- interesting readings about the attitude towards Samaritan people or towards Gentiles. Deeply despised. Deeply looked down upon. So here's this man. Here's the thing. He's stripped. No clothes or maybe just a small loincloth kind of thing. You can't tell. You can't tell anything about him. His clothes are gone. He's unconscious. You don't know if, who he is because he can't speak to you. The safe thing, listen very carefully, the safe thing to do is keep your distance and not engage. The religious complacency comes through. Keep your distance. Keep on writing. It's just like me sometimes, and I know a lot of, maybe it's, I don't know if it's a man thing or what, but it's like going to the grocery store and you don't feel like talking to anyone. So you put your head down and you grab things off the shelf and you just, you're, black, you're in, you're out. Don't bother me. I've got my things to do. It's like, going to, it's like having to go over the hill, right? If you have to go to Costco, you just want to like do it and come back. Get in the ocean and play. So I'm on a mission. Don't bother me. Head full speed, grabbing things off the shelves, and I'm back. I've got my list. The priest is concerned about his ritual purity. Next, the the next guy that comes by is the Levite. He's almost like a junior priest kind of guy. And most likely, he knows the priest is ahead of him. And the only, the only distinction we see between him and the priest, uh, verse 32 says, So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. So he probably at least took the time to like, take a couple steps to him and like, take a glance and scurry on his way. Again, remember, the question that Jesus is asking is, who is your neighbor? Who is your neighbor? Is it just your own fun group? Next comes the Samaritan. Again, and I won't, I won't go to this right now, but the Samaritans were a group of people that had been mixed with the Assyrians when the Assyrians had came down and, and conquered. But this is, um, this is before the exile time. And so they're a mixed breed. They were considered... Right, i got to read this to you. This is just it's too good. All right? It's, it's super short, but it's just... Here's the thing. This is written for some dude from 200 B.C. All right, so if you like old reading, here you go. Old dead guys. There are two nations that my soul detests. This is Ben Sirach. Again, 200 B.C., so this time period. And the third is not a nation at all. The inhabitants of Matser, the Philistines, and the stupid people living in Shechem. That's the Samaritans. The stupid people. The Samaritans were publicly cursed in the synagogues. 
And a petition was daily offered up, praying to God that the Samaritans might not be partakers of eternal life. They would pray that they would go to hell. Uh, you know, we just, we don't quite, we, you know, our Southern California easy laid back culture just, is just so distant from the animosity that existed between these two groups. It's difficult for us to understand. But they were deeply despised. And the Samaritans, to, you know, to their, also to their chagrin, they looked, they looked down upon the Jewish people as religious bullies and thugs, thought they abused their power. Verse 33 says, The Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. The hero of the story is the despised person. The word compassion is this deep, this deep internal feeling from within for compassion that leads to action. Something that, you know, it, it honestly, when I think about my own life, um, I my natural tendency is I'm more task-driven. My natural tendency is, you're all right, just get up, quit, quit complaining, you're okay. Tough, toughen up a little bit. And every family, every person has their own family dynamic of, of compassion. And often the family where people have been hurt the most, where there's pain in your family, you're going to have to understand that you might be the most harsh, critical because you, you have the attitude of, hey, it was tough for me, it's tough for you. Deal with it. And we lose compassion. We lose an understanding of this. you had a, a, a rough personal life of growing up, you've got to understand that you are more susceptible to harshness, to the attitude of, hey, I figured life out on my own. I'm successful. I did it. You do it. The Samaritan had something deep within him that said, I'm going to stop and help. And here's what he does, three things. He offers aid, he offers transportation, and he offers a final payment. Verse 34 says, He went to him and he bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Here, here's the idea. The man was beaten up so bad that he's laying on the ground as if he were dead. All right? Most likely blood from his face, bruises and wounds, contusions that make him almost unidentifiable. And he's willing to risk, willing to stop, willing to offer aid, willing to meet his actual physical needs. Again, remember this. The question is, who is your neighbor? The hard-hitting message is that it's not just people that we like, people that we're comfortable to associate with. If you've ever smelled the smell of urine of a homeless person, or even I've had this before, of, of family members who are just incapacitated, 
Christianity, according to Jesus, is not a hands-off, comfortable religion. It is bend down, stop what you're doing, and apply aid and comfort, even if that means you might experience something unpleasant. He goes on, though. He doesn't stop there. The second part of verse 34 says, Then he set him on his own animal. He allows this wounded, beat-up man to go on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. You have to remember that they are out in the middle of nowhere in between Jerusalem and Jericho. And so he puts him on his donkey or mule and takes him to Jericho. Now you have to remember again, the man's a Samaritan. All right, it's almost, you know, if you can use your Old West mind, you know, 1880 in Tucson, Arizona, and the Indian rides up with a cowboy that's been beat up and scalped and says, I want to offer aid and comfort to this person. The Indian is risking his life by doing this. So the Samaritan is taking the man into town to a dangerous place, knowing his own life could be at risk. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave, it, gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him. There are just levels, and I know, and I'm not going to keep going on this, but there are levels and levels of compassion in this story. And one of the things that we will all be tempted to do is we will be tempted to, to write a check and say, here's a hundred bucks, you know, go, go do it. We'll be tempted to um, once in a while, maybe SOS, so once every 60, 70 days, do something. But Jesus is talking here about a lifestyle of understanding who your neighbor is in your lifestyle. That's why that is the danger of churches that are all about programs. If all we do is live however we want during the week or in between program to program, you're creating um, some distorted view of what Christianity is all about. He's talking about understanding something deep within all of us to understand that who our neighbors are, that they are everybody, the hurting, wounded people. That includes financial, financial loss. We'll finish up with this. He says, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. This is so interesting. I will repay you when I come back. Think just for a minute. Okay, this is not 21st century America. If you're broke today, if you're in massive debt today and you don't have any money, you can just file bankruptcy. And I know it's harder than it used to be, but you can still save yourself. Okay, back then, what would they do? Slavery. Indentured servitude. You become property of this person until you've worked off your debt. So he's meeting levels of needs, and he's protecting him. He's even protecting him from future slavery. Here's the follow-up question then that Jesus asks to this man, to this moral, ethical, religious leader who had everything figured out. And I will tell you right now that just from studying a little bit, that the knowledge of this man this Old Testament lawyer who knew the Pentateuch probably memorized the whole thing and knew it 
in, in depth, in ways that we can't even understand. So he had massive amount of knowledge and felt quite comfortable and justified himself that he had done quite well. But here's how Jesus moves to push him. Which of these three then do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Verse 37, here is the disdain. The man won't even say the word Samaritan. He says, the one who showed mercy. The one who showed mercy. The point, the theological point of the passage is that none of us love God with all of our heart. None of us love our neighbors the way we love ourselves. And so it's pushing for something deeper than just compassionate care, although it is that. The wider context gives the answer. If you turn your page in your Bible to to, uh, Luke chapter 9, the wider context is this. 9.21, the turning point in Luke. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and on the third day to be raised. Jesus is on the journey towards Jerusalem, the journey to the cross. And while it is true, we need someone to justify ourselves, to make us right between God, it's either your token little moral effort or an understanding of who Jesus is and that He is the one who will justify. He is the one that will make us right before God. The the passion journey, the suffering journey, the theological foundation of this passage is that we all need help. From Luke's perspective, when he writes this, the man on the journey, the man who gets beat up, that was me. That's you. Incapable, incapable of meeting your own needs. And there's a picture here where the Samaritan is, is a type of Christ and a, a, a helpful way to understand that it is only through someone else that's better than us who perfectly did this, who perfectly obeyed the will of the Father, who perfectly loved neighbors. And that is our Lord Jesus Christ. When you understand that, when you've experienced grace, when grace has moved in your life, when you have been, when you have been made aware of the gospel, there is this supernatural ability to be compassionate. Listen, we can, you can, we can be a church where we play the game of being nice people. You're all capable, I'm capable of being nice once in a while. We can do that without Jesus. If that's the game we want to play, then it's something besides what Christianity is here. Because the standard is too high. It pushes us to need a Savior. But once that has happened, 
We'll finish with this. Jesus com- com- concludes with this. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So there is a, 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 an essential component that as genuine followers of Jesus Christ, we will show compassion. We will be active. We will take great risks to meet the needs of others. First Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2 says this. Verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Leaving you as an example that you might follow in his steps. The road ahead of Jesus is a hard road. The road, the Jericho road, is a hard road. Meeting the needs of other people is a hard road. There are people, I'm guaranteed this morning, that maybe while you're sitting here comfortable with your nice clothes on and you can smile, you feel like the person bloodied and beat up, left for dead. And the question for us as a church, will we be a place of compassion? Will we, will we open our eyes? Will we get, listen, I know everyone, listen, here's what I, it's so true. I'm kind of sick of it, but it's true. We're all busy. We all want to be responsible. We all want to do our things. I get that. I, same with me. But if there's anything we need to learn from this, we've got to open our eyes to people around us. Your agenda is not that important to someone who's laying there half dead. Maybe not literally, but inside, they're barely breathing. They're barely holding on. And life is painful and difficult. The question is, will you have compassion? Will you obey the words of Jesus when he says, you go and do likewise? Will you put your important schedule aside for 10 minutes? And befriend someone and pray for them. My hope in my life as I think through this, and I understand that what, when I read this, here, here's what it tells me that I'm in desperate need of a Savior. And, and renewing that in my heart and my life says to me, Thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for taking the time to initiate to reach out to me when I was 21 or whatever, late teens, who felt lost, who felt beat up, who felt confused, who just could not figure out life, to reach out and say that there is meaning and purpose and freedom and newness of life. The basis of Christianity is that Jesus is reaching out to people. He's reaching out to you. And once you've been touched by Jesus you follow and do likewise. You open your eyes to people around you who are hurting. Let's pray. Father, I, I confess that when we look at this passage and we try to go beyond just the surface of just doing nice things, it pushes us to, to be honest with ourselves that we all have a natural tendency to be self-centered, to do our own thing, But when we awaken our lives to grace, to what you have done for us on the cross and how much you love us, 
It opens our eyes to say we love you, Jesus, and we want to follow you, and we want to open our eyes to people around us who are hurting. Father, I just pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit that this would be a compassionate place, that we would be a community of people that while we are trying to be faithful to our responsibilities, we, we understand there are more important things and that, that that includes hurting, helping hurting people, showing compassion, showing mercy with our time, with our money, with the things we hold most dearly. Renew us, strengthen us, forgive us if we've been self-centered people who will never take time. I pray that we would leave here as, as active people who are compassionate, loving, gentle, merciful. In Jesus' name, amen.